and suddenly from heaven there came the sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Let us worship the Lord our God. Lord. 
Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. Praise and glory to you, creator spirit of God. You make our bread the communion of Christ's body to heal and reconcile and to make us the body of Christ. You make our wine the communion of Christ's saving blood to redeem the world. You are truth. You come like the wind of heaven, unseen, unbidden. Like the dawn, you illuminate the world around us. You grant us a new beginning every day. You warm and comfort us. You give us courage and fire and strength beyond our everyday resources. Be with us, Holy Spirit, in all we say or think. In all we do, this and every day, for we ask in Jesus' name. Grace and peace to you, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia on this Pentecost Sunday. We are glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord. And because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, that means our word of welcome is one that is extended with no qualifiers whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would please sign the friendship pad. You'll find that pad on your pew. You may sign your name and send it down and back again, and then we would have the advantage of one another's names to know who we were worshiping alongside and to greet one another at the conclusion of this service. I'd also like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of worship in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right, down a short hallway, and there you will find our deacons have prepared some refreshments for us, but most importantly, we will find the opportunity to be together with one another in our common life. In service of our common life, I would like to make a couple of announcements today that are mostly noted on the back of your bulletin, but one particularly is that next Sunday is Trinity Sunday, uh, an important Sunday in the life of the church, but for us part of our 325th anniversary celebrations. There will be a marvelous reception, much like the one we had for the 150th anniversary of the building last fall after worship in Old Buttonwood Hall. You won't want to miss that, and we will be celebrating the history of this congregation with music through the years. First church and second church with whom we reunited in the 1940s have long been places that understood the importance of worship in music in giving worship to our God. 
And so we celebrate that legacy as part of our 325th anniversary celebration next week. After the reception, you may come back here to the sanctuary where Andrew Sin will have a presentation about uh, the organ and uh, also about the history of music here. So we want to certainly not miss that opportunity to learn more, but also to celebrate together the enormous legacy that has been left to us by the generations that went before us. Finally, I'd like to note as well that we have the occasion sometimes to mark the comings and goings of members of our congregation. And Dr. Jing Luan has recently graduated and will be moving to do her medical residency. So we celebrate all that Jing has offered us through the years. And the middle hymn, Jing, is for you today. So with these things noted, let us worship God now with our confession of sin. Almighty God, send your Holy Spirit upon us as we come before you to confess our sins. As we pray our prayer of confession, may we perfectly love you and faithfully follow you today and always. Let us pray together, followed by silent prayer as the Spirit so leads us. Holy God, at Pentecost, your spirit came upon us, filling us with good news, enabling us to have visions and dreams, entrusting us with a message to all who are far away. But we do not always look for those who are far off. We stay close to those near to us, we do not share grace in a way that moves beyond our carefully constructed communities. We think your table is only for us and those like us. Forgive us, we pray. Remind us that your love is for all the world. Fill us again with your spirit and send us once more to proclaim good news for we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. We thank you, dear Lord, for sending your spirit to us today empowering us to proclaim the living Christ to every nation while forgiving us our sins and kindling our faith to lead us into truth. Friends, believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture lesson, our Old Testament lesson, is taken from the book of Numbers, chapter 11, beginning with verse 24. Listen for the word of the Lord. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And the young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Here ends the first lesson. This, the epistle lesson is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 3b. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the discernment of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. Here ends the second re reading. Our final reading of scripture comes to us from the Acts of the Apostles, the second chapter. We pick up shortly after the call to worship left off in the 14th chapter, and we'll continue through the 21st. And then, because Peter's sermon is rather long, we'll skip 20 verses or so and come back to a response to Peter's sermon for the last two verses. So listen now, continue to listen for the word of God as it comes to us this day. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Fellow Jews and all living in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this was, to spoke, this was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, the Lord declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The faith that we live and proclaim is largely meaningless if it does not give us insight into the issues of life, which is to say that whatever message we send by how we live, by what we say, by what I preach in this pulpit, will invariably be heard and seen in the context of what is going on in the world around us. It cannot be any other way. Which is not to say that I will tell you what to say and do. You do have some work to do in the preaching of the sermon, after all. But it is to say that what you say and what you do must speak to the context in which you live. That has been true all through the story of faith. Here is what was going on in Peter's world as he preached the gospel. This story comes after the ascension of Jesus at the end of the gospel narrative. Peter is preaching his inaugural sermon, if you will, and he speaks, among others, to those who have been huddled in fear but also in hope. In the time between the Ascension and Pentecost, the nascent church gathered and prayed and waited to see what would happen. Now, since Luke is the author of the book of Acts, we can expect a certain amount of editorial bias to come through. Luke wrote his version of the gospel for a largely Greek audience, possibly, probably, an audience that would have had access to influence and power and perhaps privilege. And so unlike Matthew and Mark, who have decidedly political undertones in their telling of the gospel, Luke is concerned that the message of the gospel not get caught in the fray of the politics of the day. So his narrative tends away from rather harsh criticisms of the powers that be. Luke, above all, wants his listeners, his hearers, to hear the gospel and act accordingly. We could well say that since the Acts of the Apostles is volume two, Luke then says to his readers, if you believe in this Jesus that you met in the book of Luke, well, this is what believing in him looks like. If you believe this, then this is what a life of discipleship looks like. So these stories in Acts are the stories of the early formation of the church and what happened when the early church was gathered and waiting and praying was that God 
active. Pentecost happened, and people of every nation heard the gospel and acted. Luke wants us to see his brushstrokes. He wants us to see his bias that the gospel is for everyone so much that he throws into the Pentecost listing of nations represented on that day. The language is heard. A few nations that would have been not just geographically hard to find on a map in that time period, but chronologically impossible to find on the map. There are languages at Pentecost that hadn't been spoken for a few hundred years. So the good news and its, and its claim is not only unconstrained by nationality and language, it is unconstrained by time as well. This is the lens, this is the context through which to read Peter's sermon. And though we read only a portion of the sermon, it is important to note as well that Peter does not spare the feelings of those who are listening. He makes it quite clear in the subsequent verses that it is human sin that led to the crucifixion of Jesus, and that those listening, and by extension those reading, because remember Luke wrote this for a broader audience, bear culpability for it as well. But Peter doesn't end here. He ends with good news. What strikes me about his claim that the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, is the scope of it. This is not a statement designed to limit the scope of what God has done. This is a claim on the heels of the beginning of the church that God's love and thus God's saving activity runs wide and deep. We do well to remember that because what we say and what we do will be heard in the context of our lives. And there are many for whom the gospel does not land as good news. As we contemplate the call of the church to spread good news, we have to be confronted with the fact of our own sin. For when the gospel does not land as good news, it is frequently because the good news has been presented as bad news by wrapping it up in judgmentalism, moralism, and condemnation. And this is not a new occurrence. It's been going on for a very, very long time. Consider the story of Martin Luther. He would wake his confessor up in the middle of the night in mortal terror that he would have forgotten to confess one of his sins, die in the night, and be awakened to eternal punishment. 
Don't you know his brothers in the monastery loved that particular trait? But where does it come from? It comes from a place of fear. And yet, God tells us that perfect love casts out fear. And the gospel is the expression of perfect love. So it must cast out fear. So we must learn to hear it so that it is always good news. Because when the good news has turned to bad news, it's generally because someone has put limits on God's grace. Jesus didn't suffer under Pontius Pilate, wasn't crucified, dead, and buried, and didn't descend into hell so that somebody somewhere can put a limit on God's grace. There's a popular meme being circulated on social media by many of my clergy friends this week that reads something like this. If God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it, then he probably didn't send you. None of this this is just theological jargon from a thousand years ago. It's important. It speaks to life now. It speaks to our context now. Because when we say these things about Jesus and what he did for the love of humankind, we are saying that God went to the place of abandonment so that nobody else ever has to. Indeed, at every baptism, we say at the same time that the promise is for us, for our children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. And then we say that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. It is an expansive statement. It is a huge statement. It is a statement meant to draw in and bring in, never to push away. It is the belief that God decided to claim us. Now, to be fair, Christians through the years have disagreed about the scope of salvation. Some have taken a literal reading of the book of Revelation and drawn the conclusion that exactly 144,000 people will be saved out of all time. I don't like those odds. Still others have claimed that only the Christians will be saved, except a few, the ones that didn't correctly repent of their sins and those who perhaps persist in various sins, frequently spelled S-E-X, I might add, and still others have claimed that all Christians will be saved but nobody else. Some claim that all the Christians and some of the Jews will be saved. Some claim all the Christians and all of the Jews, and some will add a few other virtuous people to the list. You get the idea. This has been going on, like I said, for a very long time. And all of the sudden, all of the sudden, the good news starts to look a bit muddy, doesn't it? Did God save some of us? None of us? Most of us? All of us? Peter said the promise is for us, for our children, for all who are far away. Us and our children is easy to understand. We get that bit. It's the for all who are far away bit that throws a monkey wrench into our discussion. Did Peter really mean it? And what did he mean when he said it? 
Now, when we look at Scripture, we look at the whole of Scripture. We know there are passages in the Bible that speak of sheep and goats and separating them. And there are passages in the Bible that unequivocally say that God's love outlasts anything we can throw at it. They are both in our holy text. We, we can't dismiss the one and cling to the other. We must always seek to bring them together into understanding. And understanding them can be difficult, particularly if we don't want to rely on cheap grace as we consider what God has done. That's cheap grace, remember, is when we say, oh, great, God has handled everything. There's nothing left for me. I can live as I wish. But neither, neither do we want to limit God's grace which I suppose those who are paying very close attention will realize I am dancing around the question of universalism, which is, of course, the ultimate question, will everyone be saved? I have always loved Karl Barth's answer to that question best. He replied with great humility, I do not know, but no Christian should hope for less. I don't want to promote an egotistical faith that is about me and what I do because when we make faith us about us and our actions, even if we're trying to speak to our context, it then becomes an unreliable act. I feel much more comfortable, much more confident casting my trust on God and what God has done. And salvation is what God has done. It's that simple. But I get it. Really, I do. When we see someone truly deserving, finally get what they have coming to them, it is so tempting to smack our lips in enjoyment and feel righteous. I mean, there are so many people who have so much coming to them. It can be very satisfying on occasion to see somebody get it at least once in a while. There's just one problem. That's a sinful way to look at the world. And it's a sinful way to understand our place in it as well. And I don't mean to suggest with any of this that sin shouldn't be taken seriously. Sin is serious. But God's grace is always greater than the fact of human sin. That is the scandal of the gospel. It's not fair. We don't get what we deserve. Thanks be to God, we don't get what we deserve. The promise, said Peter, is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. And I suppose what I am suggesting at the end of the day is that we worship a God who is big enough to anticipate the hurt we will cause, a God who is big enough to understand the hurt that has been caused to us, and a God who is big enough to hold in God's self the redemption of it all. And that's why we can say the promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, because we are speaking a word of ultimate redemption that comes only from God, and we are charged to preach it in our context. As we say at baptism, by the manner of our lives, by what we say and what we do.
And we are charged to preach that even if it offends our sense of justice, even if it sounds empty because the offense is so large. God's grace should offend our sense of justice. If it does not, we probably aren't taking it seriously enough. Now, you know my shop-worn definition of the grace of God. It is the unmerited, unconditional, undeserved love of God. You've heard me say it many, many times. You will hear me say it many, many more. But let's face it. We are transactional creatures. Our whole economy is based on transactions. The notion of something unmerited, unconditional, and undeserved really struggles to compute for us. And so we find ways to turn it into something transactional, even in the, if in the most minor way. For instance, if accepting Jesus and repenting of your sins becomes something you can do, then it can become a transaction if even an unequal one. Because if you boil it down, get past all the language around it, you're saying you do this and God will do that. But that's not how grace works. Remember, it's undeserved, unmerited, unconditional. The promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls. Making statements like this should be done with great humility. I, I will readily grant that. I cannot claim to know the mind of God, but what I can do, what I claim to do, is to make a case for God's grace. And the case for grace outweighs the case for everybody getting what they have coming to them because the case for grace is backed by God. Now, we preachers like to close our sermons with stories. We do this because Jesus taught by stories, so we think it's a great way to teach ourselves we want to pin it down with something memorable. This is not news to you. If you've listened to Preemie preach for two or three weeks, you've probably heard five or six sermons and maybe a poem or two thrown in for good measure. So, as I was sitting in my study over there this week, working on this Sunday sermon, I began doing as I always do, looking for a story to close this sermon out, to really hammer the message home. And... That message, of course, is that judgment belongs to God and that God has decided to save us and the promises for us, for our children, for all who are far away. I was sitting there beating my head against the wall looking for the closing story, as I frequently do. There's a little dent in the wall. You can see it. And as I was casting about for it, I kept coming back to the fact that I couldn't come up with an illustration that would show sufficiently the measure of the grace of God for us without somehow, in some way, diminishing it. Because I need a story 
that will encapsulate everything that Peter preached about a God who was born helpless and grew up among us and loved us and taught us and went down to death and was raised from death for us. A story that could somehow bring in the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John and the gospel of Matthew into this story. A story that would tell us and remind us how every time we come to this table we are renewed in God's grace. Seriously, I need a story. I need an illustration to end this sermon. So I came up with this. Maybe you can be the illustration. Maybe you can be the story. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us say what we believe using the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. Jongjo hi to ito ukwaki bokwaki banen etu guanshin toket etu yaso hitok shongte itok shikyan. Creo en un solo Señor, Jesucristo, Hijo único de Dios, nacido del Padre antes de todos los siglos, Dios de Dios, luz de luz, Dios verdadero de Dios verdadero. Aunva ye gu shirai gen chidenacher, gia o ya, solas o sholas, fer o fear, gia ginche, tan an yanche, den aun suspantris anacher. Aye for ons mensa, an veil venetar, aye te hemel mir gedalt, aye heeft place angenomen. Door de Heilige Geest uit de Maagde Maria en is mens geworden. Storotenta, de Hooper Hemel, Epipontiu Pilatu, Gij Pathanta, Gij Pathenta, Gij Anastanta, Te Trete Hemera. Kata tasgrafas. Et le troisième jour, il s'est levé encore selon les écritures. Et monté dans le ciel, et il s'assoit sur la main droite du Père. Er ist aufgestiegen in den Himmel und sittet jetzt zur Seiten des Vaters. Er wird kommen in Herrlichkeit. Zurichtenziele-Bendigen-und-Die-Toten。Mata-Eko-Wo-Mate-Futetabi-Hitari-Ikeru-Jito-To-Shineru-Jito-Wo-Sabaki-Tamawan-Sonokuniwa-Owa
We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. God, our creator, earth has many languages, but your gospel proclaims your love to all nations in one heavenly tongue. Now, in that one tongue, we praise you for all your gifts of love and mercy to us. And we now proclaim that this is a time when we have the privilege of returning to you a portion of our gifts for the ministry of the gospel in your kingdom.
accept these gifts that we have brought before you as tokens of our love for you. Use them for the furtherance of thy kingdom, both here and throughout the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this is the joyful feast of the Lord, and Scripture teaches that people will come from east and west and north and south to sit at table with our risen Savior, who is even now the unseen host. And east and west and north and south is the Bible's way of saying there is a place set at this table for everyone, and there is a place set at this table for you. So come, dear friends, to the joyful feast. Let us pray. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. It is truly right and our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise, eternal God, creator and ruler of the universe. With the majesty of your hand, you shape this world and all that is in it. By your Holy Spirit, you breathe life into human form and set us on the earth to praise and to serve you. When we wandered from your ways and were lost in sin's wilderness, your truth burned in the hearts of prophets who called your people to return to the path of righteousness. In the fullness of time, you sent your Son to be our deliverer. In every age, your Holy Spirit has led us in your ways. Therefore, we praise you joining our voices with choirs of angels and with all the faithful of every time and place and forever sing to the glory of your name.
You are holy, O God of majesty, and blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. At his baptism by John, your spirit came with gentle wings, settling on him your blessing. In the wilderness of temptation, your spirit stood by with power. In his life and ministry, your spirit led him to serve the poor, proclaim freedom from sin's bondage, open eyes with faith's sight, and befriend the friendless and the outcast. In all he did and said, he announced the coming of your saving might. By his death on the cross and rising from the tomb, he broke the power of death and led the way to eternal life. Ascended to rule from on high, Christ prays for us and promises the coming of peace and power. Remembering all your mighty and merciful acts, we take this bread and this wine from the gifts you have given us and celebrate with joy the redemption won for us in Jesus Christ. Accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving as a holy, living and holy offering of ourselves that our lives may proclaim the one crucified and risen. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ, Christ has died. died. Christ, Christ is, is risen. risen. Christ, Christ will come, come again. again. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and blood of Christ. By your Spirit, unite us with the living Christ and with all who are baptized in his name, that we may be one in ministry in every place, as this bread is Christ's body for us, send us out to be the body of Christ to the world. By the fire of your spirit, O God, forge us into one church, many and different people, together in Christ's embrace. Set our hearts aflame with a love for the truth, and the desire to do your will, that our witness to Christ may burn brightly. Keep us faithful in your service until Christ comes in final victory, and we shall feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm. Through Christ, all glory and honor are yours, Almighty Father, with the Holy Spirit in the Holy Church, now and forever. Now let us pray the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come, thy, thy will be done, on earth as, as it, it is, is in heaven. heaven. Give, give us, us this day our daily bread, bread and forgive us our debts as, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and, and the glory, glory forever. forever. Amen. As he was about to surrender himself to suffering, Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, 
saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after they had supped, he took the cup, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes again. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Let us keep, keep the, the feast. feast.
Let us pray once more. Loving God, we thank you and we praise you that in love you have reached across the abyss of human sin to bring us once more into your loving embrace. Having thus fed us at Christ's table, send us now to be his body. Through Christ our Lord we pray all these things. Amen.
go in peace as God's beloved who have been to Christ's table in the knowledge that you will return to that table in this life or in the life that is yet to come. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.